Hey, Scott Walker here on our podcast, You Can't Recall Courage. Thanks so much for joining us. What an exciting week. I got to tell you, I was just so proud, so proud and honored to be with uh, my great friend, Vice President Mike Pence. I was uh, proud not just to be with him in Salt Lake City, but uh, really proud of the job he did on that debate stage. Uh, He was uh, Midwest nice, but strong, which is exactly what we'd hoped for. Uh, four years ago, I had the chance to work with him on debate prep. In fact, I actually stood in and filled in for him as Tim Kaine at that point. And he did a wonderful job, as as we would have expected. I'd known him for years as a governor, and he was one of my earliest and most vocal supporters when he was in the Congress. And I was going through the protest and, and the subsequent recall that followed. Then I was proud and later that year in 2012 to help him as he ran for governor of another Midwestern state, uh, Indiana. He did a fabulous job there and was absolutely thrilled my friend was selected four years ago to be Donald Trump's running mate. Thought he did a fabulous job. We we helped him through the process. My, myself, having gone through multiple uh, big-time elections, big debates, uh, was happy to help him in the 2016 election as he prepared for that. And I, I thought back then, four years ago, that, that that debate was probably more important than debates are typically for vice presidential candidates. The, the general rule of thumb, and it was still true this year as well, is do no harm. Because when push comes to shove, more than anything, people are voting for the top of the ticket. No, no doubt about it. But I got to tell you, in 2016, for many Americans, and even me in, in many regards, you know, Trump at the time was a bit of an unknown factor. He was untested. He'd never held office before. And so while the contrast was clear between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, the fact that now President Trump selected someone with the caliber, uh, the calm, the, 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 the strong sense of leadership, the calm personality, uh, the uh, impeccable qualifications uh, as Mike Pence, and then when people saw that, I, I think that debate really kind of brought it all together. You saw someone who was kind of what you you wanted out of not just a candidate for vice president, but you could easily see in the worst case scenario, of course, which is what, God forbid, it would happen to any president, regardless of party, but in the worst case scenario, someone who was quite legitimately prepared to be president of the United States and who, on a more realistic basis, uh, was going to be a good partner, someone who could help lead. I remember at the time that was a pretty compelling argument I can make to others was that I'd say if Donald Trump has the good sense to pick someone like Mike Pence, imagine the others he's going to be uh, including in his cabinet and on his team. And the other big thing for me back then as it is now was his list, the list of names of judicial picks he'd make for the highest court in the land, the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's part of the reason why so many of us have been exceptionally pleased with Donald Trump. He continued to put Mike Pence in a position of authority and and um, use his expertise quite effectively, uh, particularly uh, over the last three and a half years as uh, he's been very, very effective in working with governors and mayors, of which he has a, a, just an incredible amount of credibility on that issue just because of his personal relationships. Um, and, of course, the court, which we've talked about in this podcast before, uh, the fact that uh, the fact that he put uh, Judge Barrett up as his nominee, uh, I think, is yet another impeccable sign of, of why it's so important uh, that Donald Trump will be elected again to four more years. And the quality of the over, I think it's over 230 
federal judicial positions he's nominated for the various levels from now the third nomination for the Supreme Court, Court of Appeals and federal judgeships. Uh, really, uh, just as it was four years ago, uh, the quality of Mike Pence and the list of names that he submitted uh, that he would pick uh, or that he would put on as nominees for the various federal positions, incredibly important. Four years ago, seeing Mike Pence perform, I think, brought an incredible amount of comfort uh, to not only independent voters, but even a few Republicans who were concerned or at least uncertain at the time. This year, I think it was even more important uh, for some obvious reasons, not just for Mike Pence uh, coming days after the world really found out about uh, President Trump and the First Lady's positive test for COVID-19, but also equally true for uh, the stakes uh, when it comes to Senator Kamala Harris, uh, considering that Joe Biden, if he were to win the election this November 3rd on the day of his inauguration, would be older, at 78, would actually be older than Ronald Reagan was in the last year of his presidency. And at the time he first ran back in 1980 and was successfully elected, the critics even then were raising concerns about age, Joe Biden is about eight years older than Reagan was at the end of his eight years uh, as president, the 40th president of the United States. So stakes incredibly high. I obviously am biased because I helped uh, Mike Pence and thought uh, he uh, he didn't just win the debate. You know, winning debate is such a subjective measure. But I think from from any objective measure, uh, he won the debate. He had a demeanor that we expected. I, I had hoped that the way I characterized it, I wanted him to be Midwest nice but strong, meaning to be polite and calm, not rattled, um, come across as someone you'd want to spend time with, but in the same breath, not back away. You know, four years ago, he was Midwest nice and competent, and that's good, but we needed more than just Midwest nice and competent. We needed strong. That's exactly what we saw. Uh, someone who, you know, I think, and, and when we, we met, we worked together as a team, and I should just stress from the onset talking about what we did in this process, people talk about debate prep as though it was coaching or some sort of memorization. None of that was true. In the end, all we really did was make it easier for the American public, uh, make it easier for him to, to show, to reveal to the American public, to reveal, excuse me, reveal, <laughs> getting ahead of myself there, to reveal, I should say, to the American voter exactly the quality of this leader, that someone who is a, 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 a well-thought-of a, a leader who thinks through the issues, who understands the facts, who's got a great command of what's going on, and a great ability to put it all together. What we did was open the door to make it easier for people to see the great leader that Mike Pence is and the incredible grasp he has of the issues that are important to the people he talks to around this country every single day. On COVID, you know, that was an issue that clearly uh, many, if not all in the media, uh, thought was going to be an issue that the vice president would be on his heels on. Instead, as we had hoped, he actually made it into an issue where he was charging forward on, not just defending, but charging on. And, and it was clear. Uh, he did this, I think, much more effectively than the president had last week. You know, one of the challenges is 
you know, the president was always charging. Certainly that's a part of his personality. I like that when he's shaking things up in the swamp in Washington. Uh, there needs to be that with the politicians in the Congress, including sometimes members of our own party. It certainly needs to be true with the bureaucracy in the deep state. But in a debate, there are times in which, you know, you can set things up so that your opponent is helping you make your case. And the, the vice president just did that brilliantly. But on coronavirus, uh, Senator Harris, who I think, who I actually think is a pretty sharp person and who is fairly capable, having been a former prosecutor, I, I just got the sense watching her that she was overcoached, probably by too many sources. As I mentioned, there was a small group of us working with the vice president, and really what we did was help him focus on who he is to begin with, not change him, not overcoach him, let Mike Pence be Mike Pence but give him a little encouragement to, to, to be forceful about it as well when appropriate. And on COVID-19, I think he was brilliantly so. In fact, one of the things I mentioned uh, to the vice president was uh, acting a way like he was all throughout this year and giving the, uh, the updates as the, the chair, as the head of the White House Task Force on Coronavirus. He came out and, and, and laid out the facts. He talked about the unprecedented level uh, of testing. He talked about how they listened to the scientists when early on Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks told the president and vice president that they needed to take dramatic action or as many as 2.2 million Americans uh, would die from this dreaded global pandemic. Uh, that's just the number here in the United States. Uh, they took action. Remember the whole, you know, level off, uh, we have to bend the curve we did that. We At first it was 15 days, then it was 30. They took the unprecedented actions required to save lives, arguably as many as hundreds of thousands of lives. Had we listened to Joe Biden at about that same time, remember he was ridiculing the president. He was calling him names. He was attacking and pushing back on the president for trying to put restrictions on travel from places like China and Europe. Had we listened to Joe Biden... Uh, the uh, the difficulties from coronavirus would have been far, far worse than they were. And if you want to list a comparable, I think the vice president was great in pointing this out, that the way that uh, the vice president as part of the Obama administration dealing with H1N1, it was 60 million Americans who were infected uh, with, that, uh, with that virus. And if it had been anywhere near uh, the level of the serious strain that we have with coronavirus, uh, the uh, the casualty rate would have been so much greater. In fact, Joe Biden's own chief of staff a year ago at Texas A&M acknowledged that it was only by chance that this didn't end up being one of the largest mass casualty events in global history. Mike Pence turned what could have been a very strong negative uh, into a, a position of strength where you know, certainly this is something that no one would wish upon any administration, but how I think with his firsthand knowledge of the facts, with having worked with governors and mayors and healthcare professionals, he knew, he knew this issue inside and out and still does today. And in line that, yeah, we had a lot of fun talking about, it, it wasn't a, uh, you know, unlike this perception by some of the media that there's canned lines. No, there wasn't a memorizer scripted line, but it was just the perfect opportunity when Senator Harris, as former Vice President Biden had done in the past, 
tried to make this argument out their so-called plan. A plan, when, when you look at it, is overwhelmingly the things that this administration has done or is in the process of doing. It's a perfect time to say that in many ways it's, it's almost like plagiarizing uh, the work of this administration. And I loved how Mike Pence said, you know, that's something that Joe Biden knows a little something about. Obviously, back in the late 80s, when he was running for president the first time, Joe Biden had to had to drop out of that race because he plagiarized multiple things. But one in particular was the speech of the labor leader from the United Kingdom at the time, literally almost word for word. They later found out he did other things with speeches from Bobby Kennedy and many others and even even misstated his position in terms of how he graduated from the law school and what happened even one of his term papers that he took uh, directly from a document that wasn't his own. More to come on this, but I want to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So Scott Walker here. We're back on our podcast. You can't recall courage talking about the debate and uh, really having the honor and pleasure. In fact, give me a little inside scoop. Uh, it was uh, Mark Short, the, pre- the vice president's chief of staff, a number of his key staff members, uh, boy, who've just did some phenomenal work on research in terms of uh, helping us put together uh, what we anticipated uh, the pushback would be against the vice president, not only from Senator Harris, but from Susan Page, who I think compared to the first debate did a better than expected job. And I don't know that any of them are truly objective, but I, I think she probably of the, the bunch uh, it gave the most effective sense. Certainly, she grilled uh, Mike Pence on a number of issues, but I think she, in in her defense, uh, was pretty effective at grilling Senator Harris as well. Um, and and uh, overall, uh, gave the candidates, it appears to be, almost equal time. In fact, by some measures, uh, despite the left's grumbling about so-called interruptions, uh, Senator Harris got slightly more time than the vice president. But But all in all, a pretty good job with the moderator about keeping it pretty even, Stephen, on, uh, in terms of the time and the ability to respond uh, on the issues. And she covered, she helped the candidates cover a good um, amount of territory. Um, in our debate prep, we, uh, just as we did four years ago, where I, I got in the mind of Tim Kaine, almost treated it like, you know, Aaron Rodgers and other quarterbacks often do. They, you know, you look at the game tape from the week before, I got into the head of Tim Kaine four years ago, looking at videos of him on Sunday morning shows. When I looked at his debate for his debates for governor and for the U.S. Senate before being Hillary Clinton's running mate, it was clear that much as he is today, his demeanor is pretty laid back, pretty calm, not uh, not over the top. But for whatever reason, the Clinton camp uh, in the weeks leading up to the debate would send him out on the Sunday morning shows and other interviews. And and he was very, very aggressive. I used to joke that it was like, you know, he had a couple of those five-hour energy things before he went on some of these shows. And even though he's pretty good off the cuff, he's been the DNC chair before, he was repeating things over and over again, almost word for word. And so we picked up on that. And I got to the point, I, I used to joke that, I could say these almost in my sleep. I'd say things like, hey, America, you need a year-hired president, not a year-fired president, and that's exactly what you'll get from Hillary Clinton. We knew he would say things like that over and over and over again. 
In fact, at one point, it's funny if you go back and look at the tape, there was a moment in the 2016 debate where he said something he had said repeatedly at other interviews, but had not yet said that night, but because the vice president, then Governor Pence, had heard it from me so many times, he, he did the old you know, nod, and there you go again, uh, just as Reagan had done uh, in debates himself. That was because we were so well prepared uh, that, that he knew it was coming. And, and again, it wasn't about memorizing things as much as being prepared and then being able to share what would come natural uh, from, from Mike Pence. Well, in this case, it was a little bit different. It wasn't just preparing for Senator Harris, which was not as easy as as it was for Tim Kaine four years ago. In some ways, it should be because, of course, she was a candidate for president, but she got out uh, by the, before the end of the year. Um, other than the uh, the famous debate moment between her and Joe Biden, which I still can't believe the media doesn't put more emphasis on, you know, there's one thing to run and have differences, even to call each other a few rotten things along the way and still be on the ticket. There are examples of that from the past. But remember, she made it personal. She talked about one of the most effective, if only had she made in a debate like that, was when she looked at Joe Biden, asked him why he authored uh, early in his career as a senator legislation to ban f- federally ordered, court-ordered, uh, desegregation, the, the busing uh, that uh, allowed black children to go to uh, or enabled uh, black children to go to schools that previously had been all white. And she made it personal by pointing out, you know, one of those children, one of those early classes to be on those buses was a little girl that was her. And it was a very, very effective hit. Uh, but really, other than a few moments like that, because she got out early before she got too many chances to do that, and because the Biden-Harris campaign have done very, very few tough, tough interviews, we haven't got to see her in anything but these kind of pushover interviews along the way. And so we were able to take bits and pieces from what she said at the convention speech and when she was first announced, some of the interviews, those debates early on in 2019. But more than anything, we spent our time anticipating what Susan Page might uh, ask and how she might go about doing that. And I got to tell you, that was incredibly effective because I think in terms of an aggressor, again, in fairness, she was aggressive to Senator Harris as well. Uh, that Page's points were probably more, more. Um, I don't want to say uh, damning because the, the, the vice president was very effective handling, but at least we're, we put him on the spot more than I think just about any of the things that Senator Harris said. Thankfully, that was something we had anticipated. The vice president was ready. Uh, he knew exactly where he was going. And in this instance, like I said, on coronavirus, I think he gave the most effective uh, defense and, and explanation, not just a defense, explanation of what this administration has done and what their plan is going forward, the contrast with the failures and the empty promises of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and then on issue after issue on the economy, made it clear, not only on taxes, got them to acknowledge yet again that they're going to repeal from the very onset the Trump tax cuts. Fact-checked after fact-checked after fact-checked, have shown that the vast majority of hardworking Americans 
benefit from the tax cut. In fact, over 80% of the working people in this country benefited uh, through the Trump tax cuts. In fact, he, he boiled it down not only to how much they saved from the tax cut itself, but how much more uh, on top of that in terms of take-home pay. Spelled that out, made that number real, and then got her back on her heels again when she said, well, you know, Joe Biden said he's only going to raise taxes for people making over $400,000 a year. As Joe Biden would say, that's malarkey. You can't repeal the Trump tax cuts and say you're only going to do it to people over 400000 It just doesn't add up, and that's not what he said. Much like he said the other day when he said he'd, he'd reveal, uh, he'd tell people what he meant, what he thinks about uh, stacking the court after the election. I think the reality is people just need to realize there's a lot of things you're going to learn after the election. We're going to learn what I just said is true, that that it's not just people making 400000 that most working people in this country will see a tax increase from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris if they're in office, uh, if they fulfill their promise to repeal the Trump tax cut. I think we'll see that uh, if, God forbid, they win, we'd see that uh, fracking really would be abolished and they put an end or begin at the end of fossil fuels in America, just as they both promised during the primary. I think you'd see that taxpayers would be forced to pay for things like abortion. Uh, and you'd see a threat towards law-abiding citizens being able to legally uh, possess the firearms necessary to protect themselves, their families, and their property. There's a lot of things people are going to find out after the election. And I know Joe Biden thinks that that's, that's uh, okay to do because he doesn't want to take, he doesn't want to give the media a reason to focus on anything other than attacking Donald Trump, but I believe voters want to know. And that was a point, particularly on the courts, that, that Mike Pence did brilliantly. He pushed uh, Senator Harris on that. She refused to answer. He pushed back again. And then when she did it the second time, he spelled it out. He looked right at the camera and said, let the record show. The senator refused to answer the question. They're refusing to because we know they're going to pack the court. And we know they don't want voters to know that. Because not just Republicans, not just conservatives, but independents. And yes, I believe some discerning Democrat voters understand that packing the court is a bad idea. The court has had nine seats for more than a century and a half. Even people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, and others on the court, regardless of ideological belief, say that have said in the past that nine justices is right. In fact, Joe Biden has said that in the past because he's outsourced his agenda to the radical left because this radical element of the party has so much control and because he's so worried about risking it. The same reasons why they're so slow to condemn the violence and riots that all too often accompany some of these so-called peaceful protests. Uh, they're afraid to do that. Uh, they don't want to lose their base, but they also don't want to give a reason for independent voters uh, not to, uh, to treat them seriously. Mike Pence did a brilliant job of pointing that out. He was effective in terms of, of China. <laughs> he talked about, I mean, just so many openings that Senator Harris left to talk about. I love the line when he said, you know, the trade war in China, Joe Biden didn't even fight them. He didn't even, didn't even try to fight the, the trade war in China. Uh, issue after issue on the environment, making the case, yeah, we want clean air, we want clean land, we want clean water. 
In fact, if you look at emissions and other measurable things about uh, the uh, health and well-being of our people and of our um, of our air, land, and water, it's actually better today than it has been in the past. And we we need to be able to do that and still not dismantle our economy. When you look at things like the so-called Green New Deal, something that Senator Harris was one of the lead sponsors on, one of the earliest sponsors on this issue, and where the Biden-Harris website still says that that Green New Deal, the so-called Green New Deal, would still be the part of the framework uh, of, uh, of the Biden plan going forward, that would be devastating in places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania because of the negative impacts on manufacturing workers and farmers and others in agriculture. These were all things the vice president did exceptionally well. He just went through on issue after issue after issue after issue, even when it came to the the final question, other than the one from the the uh, eighth grader, uh, or the eight-year-old, I guess it was, but from the, the second to the last question about conceding the election, which is a bogus argument to begin with. I got to tell you, who've been someone who's been through four major elections, you don't concede anything uh, until you get past the election. You operate as though you're going to make the case, you're going to win, and you just need enough time and enough uh, opportunities to get to the voters to get your message out. And so any candidate that's conceding anything uh, before Election Day, I, I think, isn't focused on winning. But truth be told, as the vice president stated, the audacity of that question is it's the Democrats who have yet to even concede the 2016 election. In fact, Hillary Clinton herself has said as far as 2020, under no conditions should Joe Biden concede the election. These are people who, from the very onset, would not concede the election. They've, they've been going after him with bogus investigations uh, that have over and over and over again uh, been, been found to be untrue and unwarranted. And in fact, we just saw this past week more information about Hillary Clinton herself being involved in these bogus attempts. You saw a partisan impeachment process. You've seen all these things. To me, the more appropriate place uh, to, to put that question is not just with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but with Hillary Clinton and the whole rest of the establishment in Washington, particularly those Democrats in Washington. Overall, I just thought Mike Pence did a spectacular job. It was a grand slam home run not just because he performed well, not just because he answered the questions and talked directly to the American people in a way that was genuine and, and well-founded and just decent, because that's who he is. He is a decent person. But I also thought more than just in performance, more than just in feeling, on the facts, he made a very compelling case. I think the best case thus far in defense of the Trump-Pence administration and laying out the perspective of not only where they would go going forward, but how that contrast with the failed policies and the failed agenda of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Till next week, I'm Scott Walker. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast, You Can't Recall Courage. Till next time, keep fighting for freedom.